Progress versus Parasites by Douglas Carswell. Chapter 12. Dutch Boom. The world's first industrial revolution didn't happen in England. It occurred on the other side of the North Sea in Holland. Contrary to the conventional wisdom, it was the Dutch that produced the world's first modern economy. It was there in the 16th century, 150 years before anything like it happened in England, that per capita income started to increase from one decade to the next. This was something that few other societies had ever achieved before. Previously, where riches had been amassed, it had been in the courts and the harems of kings and emperors through redistribution. Wealth was taken from many and given to a few. But those that had above-average incomes acquired them by taking off everyone else. In the Netherlands in the 16th century, however, wealth came to be generated rather than simply gathered. How and why did this happen? By the early 16th century, output per person in the Netherlands was already as high as anywhere in Europe, with the possible exception of northern Italy. But then over three generations in the 17th century, Dutch per capita output rose by a greater amount than had happened during previous generations who had ever lived anywhere. By the start of the 18th century, while almost 60% of people in the UK were still engaged in agriculture, a mere 40% of the Dutch still worked the land. Approximately a third of their workforce was in industry. At first glance, Holland's emergence seemed unlikely. Like Venice, the Netherlands was a soggy backwater with few natural resources. Yet like Venice, the Dutch had the key conditions that made intensive economic growth possible. Firstly, the Dutch had achieved their independence, ousting those archetypal parasites, the Habsburgs, during the Dutch revolt that started in the 1560s. On several occasions, it looked as though the Dutch might get gobbled up before the Habsburgs finally gave up trying to rule the Netherlands in 1648. Secondly, power within the New Republic was dispersed. The Union of Utrecht in 1579 loosely amalgamated seven different Dutch provinces under a central administration. While a central authority in the shape of a stadtholder or monarch and the state's general or parliament were to oversee a common defence, foreign and to some extent fiscal policy, the towns and provinces retained a great deal of autonomy. The Dutch had long had a tradition of autonomy. At a very local level, the drainage boards, or Walterschappen, important institutions in a country prone to flooding, possessed their own independent tax-raising powers. Long before the 16th century, feudalism, in the strict sense of the term, had disappeared amongst the Dutch. William the Silent, the leader of the Dutch revolt against Spain, observed in 1538 that there are no feudal goods in the countryside, for all the lands are freely owned. Towns, too, had tended to govern their own affairs. The new Dutch Republic had the third and final ingredient for economic takeoff. She was interconnected and open to exchange. Sitting at a confluence of waterways, her merchants were able to trade upstream along the Rhine and into the European interior. The sea linked her to the Baltics and Scandinavia, England, France, Spain, the Mediterranean and beyond. 
Dutch ocean-going ships, the flutes, opened up new markets as she began to trade in salt, fish, wine, grain, timber, and from the 16th century, spice, cloth, silk and copper. Longer distance voyages were launched to Brazil and the Far East. War, never normally good for economic growth, brought with it a silver lining for the Dutch in the form of a large influx of skilled migrants from French-controlled territory to the south. Pouring into the Free Republic, it's estimated that by the 1590s, one in ten people in Holland was an immigrant. These new arrivals who'd come to live alongside their co-religionists brought with them know-how, entrepreneurial flair and capital, helping the fledgling textile industry in particular. Over half of the largest depositors at the Bank of Amsterdam were Walloons. This combination of independence, free internal markets, international trade and new capital transformed the Netherlands from a backwater into a booming economy. The Dutch prospered by processing tobacco, weaving silk, refining sugar and making everything from bricks to watches, glass to guns, maps to beer, and all for a mass market. Freed from the Habsburgs, the merchant interests that ran the Dutch towns ran them in the interests of the productive. Taxes on trade and commerce were cut. The Spanish vice of granting special commercial privileges to the well-connected was ended. From the 1590s, guilds were no longer able to be quite so restrictive. Many of the restrictive practices were abolished. No longer running the risk of having it appropriated, expropriated, Dutch merchants accumulated capital and they invested it, intensifying the boom yet further. By 1602, Holland became home to the world's first modern stock market, the Amsterdam Stock Exchange. Capital there was invested in new ventures and new technologies. While earlier Italian inventors did little more than toy with the idea of a water-powered frame for the production of yarn, the Dutch pioneered new windmill technology. Wind, alongside a plentiful supply of peat, provided the energy input for this industrial takeoff. By the early 1600s, there were thousands of, water mill, of, wi of windmills, including industrial ones used to power timber saws, grain presses, paper mills, textile frames, and even the production of dyes. Dutch productivity increased and production rapidly expanded. There were three sugar refineries in Amsterdam in 1603. By 1660, there were 60. Leiden produced 30,000 pieces of cloth in 1585. By 1665, she was making 140,000 pieces of cloth a year. Dutch workers were producing so much more efficiently than anyone else, they commanded higher wages. Urbanisation, in part enabled by a free labour market, intensified the gains of industrialisation and trade yet further. By the 17th century, the Netherlands was easily the most urban country in the world, with over half her population living in towns and cities. Dutch ports became great centres of shipping and commerce. So much so, in fact, that a Venetian diplomat lamented Amsterdam was the image of Venice in the days when Venice was thriving. As Venice had done in an earlier age, 
the Dutch had discovered the trick of earning a living through specialisation and exchange. Despite not producing much in the way of grain or wine or wool or wood for themselves, the Dutch observed the Italian traveller, Ludovic Giacodani, ate more bread, drank finer wines and dressed in better textiles than those that did. Describing what made the Dutch so wealthy, Daniel Defoe explained they were the carriers of the world, the middle persons in trade. They buy to sell again, take in to send out, and the greatest part of their vast commerce consists in being supplied from all parts of the world, that they may supply all the world again. Dutch living standards duly soared. Per capita output in 1500 was about the European average of 761 US dollars a year, using Angus Madison's constant prices again. This was below the standard of living enjoyed by people in Italy in the last days of the Roman Republic. A century later, however, by 1600, Dutch output had almost doubled to 1,381 US dollars a year. By 1700, it was almost 2,200 US dollars a year. Nor were the social benefits of the Dutch Golden Age confined simply to economic prosperity. Science and learning flourished too. There were 12 university-type institutions within the Republic, including the University of Leiden. By the 17th century, it's estimated that 25 out of every thousand young men had a university education. Nowhere in Europe was this percentage higher until the First World War. A century and a half after the Dutch began their upward trajectory, England's output per person began to rise too. Being a much larger country on the other side of the North Sea, and home to many historians, England's takeoff came to overshadow the Dutch in more ways than one. Yet it's a measure of how far ahead the Dutch were that well into the 19th century, almost 250 years after output per person in England had started to increase, England still had not caught up with the Dutch. But why the Dutch? The Dutch flourished because they were free, the productive able to escape the grip of the parasitic. But why were they free? Why was power dispersed in this one particular part of Europe at this one time and not in, say, Portugal or Poland? The Dutch Golden Age cannot simply be explained away as a question of coincidence, the happy confluence of geography, all those waterways, or power politics, defeating Philip II of Spain. Nor is it enough to merely point to the shape of 16th and 17th century Dutch institutions to account for what happened. The institution of serfdom might well have disappeared from the Dutch countryside, and municipal authorities may well have been strong. Towns did indeed have autonomy over taxes and commercial affairs, while the Stadtholder and the States General were kept weak. But all this came about because the old ideas that would have once enabled those with power to use it to extort from the productive, had been undermined by new ways of thinking. As we've seen, when parasitic interests prevail, those at the apex of society are able to order society to their advantage when it's believed that society ought to be ordered. When it's believed that the world and our place in it is part of some sort of celestial order, 
arranged from on high, we implicitly accept that there should be orders from on high. But in the Netherlands, the notion of a divinely choreographed cosmic order had begun to crumble. This was the great transformative change that set the Dutch free. For it was what inhibited those who might otherwise inhibit free exchange. The German priest Martin Luther had launched a religious revolution, the Reformation, in the early 16th century. Luther rejected the idea of a hierarchical church presiding over a cosmically ordained order. Man's relationship with God, he proclaimed, is direct by faith alone. The Protestant Reformation saw the creation of all sorts of self-governing religious communities across Northern Europe, and nowhere more so than in Holland. These were independent from the hierarchy of popes and bishops. Today we might make the mistake of assuming that any question about church governance is merely an ecclesiastical affair. But in the 16th and 17th centuries, there was nothing otherworldly about such matters. They were of profound, immediate political significance. If a religious community could govern itself free from priests, then surely other communities could run their own affairs free from princes. And if a society was capable of organising itself, why have a powerful king in control at all? Such disruptive ideas swirled across Northern Europe at the time. So subversive of the existing order were they, that in Germany, tens of thousands of peasants had risen up during the Peasants' Wars in the early 16th century. Unlike the Netherlands, where the Protestant lower orders drove out a Catholic elite, in Germany the Peasant Rebellion failed. If the German sociologist Max Weber is to be believed, the Protestant Reformation is important in explaining intensive economic growth because it brought with it a particular work ethic. But it's difficult to believe that any sort of Protestant work ethic can explain why some parts of Europe started to industrialise. For a start, there were plenty of passionately Protestant places in Europe in the 16th century that showed absolutely no sign of industrialisation. Nor is there much evidence of any proto-Protestantism among, say, the proto-capitalist northern Italian towns in the 14th and 15th centuries. Weber, it seems, has things back to front. Protestantism is significant not because it meant the emergence of a particular orderly attitude to work. Its significance was the disorderly effect it had on established authority. Protestantism is important in explaining why it was the Dutch came to repudiate the idea of a single set of canonical truths, what you might call a top-down prescription by which we should live. This in turn helps explain why it was that they revolted. But there's much more to Dutch ideas than revolting Protestantism. Before even Luther became came Erasmus of Rotterdam, he did much to revive rationalism as a way of explaining the world. Then, in the wake of the Dutch Revolt, rationalist thinkers began to make Holland their home. The Dutchman, sorry, the Frenchman, René Descartes, lived in the Dutch Republic for 20 of his most productive years. The Englishman John Locke found refuge there from Stuart England. As important as these imports, perhaps was the homegrown talent, which included Baruch Spinoza, for whom God was impersonal, 
a deterministic system through which everything happened by necessity rather than divine direction. In place of the old orthodoxies, free inquiry began to bubble away. Hugo Grotius started to build a powerful theological justification for free trade and economic self-order. The merchant class in the Netherlands were no longer supplicants to kings, their autonomy now deemed to be ordained. The natural order was no longer submission, but self-autonomy. These new ideas encouraged the notion that the merchant class might rule in their own right. The productive had been set righteously free. Thank you for listening to this episode of Progress versus Parasites. I'm Douglas Carswell, and I very much enjoyed talking to you about the subject of my book. If you're interested in hearing more from this series, please do listen to some of the other episodes available on my podcast.